This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I am worried about what a Donald Trump presidency may represent for our democracy and our freedom. But if we are going to defend democracy and freedom, we will need the active support of people on the Republican and conservative sides of the political divides. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome back to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. In the first episode of this podcast, I explained why it would be a big mistake to underestimate Trump. We can't be sure he'll lose because approval ratings are terrible or because he'll betray his base and the economy or because he can't build the war. More generally, I've come to be known as a bit of a pessimist, a kind of Dr. Doom of democracy. And there's reasons for this. I've shown in a lot of research that people across the world are turning against democracy in a pretty deep way. And when you look at the nasty surprises we've seen in 2016, it's very tempting to be pessimistic. Everybody said that Brexit couldn't happen, and it did. Everybody said that Donald Trump could not become president, and he did. So it would be tempting to assume that 2017 is sure to be just as bad as last year that the German elections are going to bring a nasty surprise for the far-right populists gaining 20, 25, perhaps 30% of the vote. That in the Netherlands, Gerd Wilders, who has promised to ban the Koran, is sure to do extremely well. And that in France, Marine Le Pen may become the president, casting mortal danger on the future of the European Union and aligning his country with Vladimir Putin. In the United States, it's tempting to think that Donald Trump will do huge damage. That democratic norms will be undermined in a real way over the course of his presidency. And that he'll be able to pass terrible policies that do damage to the American economy and to a lot of the people who are living here. But I don't actually think that these outcomes are sure to materialize. 2016 doesn't mean that the nasty people will always win or that decency will always lose. Rather, the way to understand what's been going on in politics in the United States and abroad over the last year or two is that the range of plausible outcomes has hugely expanded. It's not that the worst thing that will always happen, but rather that we used to live in an ordinary political system in which we could predict what would happen. And now we live in extraordinary times in which all kinds of things might happen. So today I just want to give a brief scenario for optimism about Trump. What is the best case scenario and what kind of circumstances might we be able to get through this? Well, the way that I see this scenario playing out is that Trump might actually be quite popular at first. That he'll bring visible change to government, that he'll pass big tax cuts, flashy deals for foreign leaders. But a lot of these things are short-termist policies that are damaging in the long run. And over time, people might catch on to that and they might catch on to the incompetence 
of his government team. When the economy suffers, when people see the real-world damage that his immigration policies do to real people, when some of the deals he cuts abroad are shown to embolden dictators like Vladimir Putin and make them harm U.S. interests, Trump's popularity might tank. And I imagine that under that kind of circumstance, he would go all out on his anti-immigrant stance, on his anti-immigrant rhetoric, that he might threaten the dreamers, that his deportation policies would again and again affect U.S. citizens as well. And my hope is that in that kind of circumstance, the American public would finally rebel, that Trump would become deeply unpopular with his approval ratings not where they are now in the mid-40s, but sinking into the mid-20s or lower. And that in those kind of circumstances, GOP leaders would finally find the courage to disown him and to distance themselves from his brand of politics in a long way. And that might prepare the ground in 2020 for a Democratic Party leader who doesn't just run on saying Donald Trump is horrid, who doesn't just run by assembling a coalition of interests, but who stands on a real unifying vision, offering solutions that make the lives of average Americans much better over time and win a thumping victory with that. And on the most optimistic scenario, that wouldn't be the end of it because we don't want a politics that remains divided for a long time. We don't want the racial cleavage to be at the center of our politics in 2024 and 2028. That would not be true victory. True victory would be that the Republican Party would transform itself, reform itself, and that when we run elections in 2024 and 2028, they are between a center-left with a real vision for how to improve people's lives and a center-right that accepts all Americans as equal citizens and abstains from racial dog whistles. I'm not sure how likely this scenario is. I remain quite pessimistic. I remain deeply worried about some of the worst-case scenarios that might materialize. But the range of possible outcomes is wide, and the optimistic scenario, too, is possible, and that's what we have to fight for over the next four years. I do think we can beat Trump, just as I think we can beat populism around the world. But the first step is to jettison our comforting assumptions and take a hard look of what is facing us. There's nobody who can help us do that better than Larry Diamond, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, the co-editor of the Journal of Democracy, and one of the deepest thinkers about how democracies thrive or perish. I've been reading and teaching his work since I was a first-year graduate student, so I'm especially excited that he's able to join us here today. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Larry. It's a pleasure, Yasha. So we're recording this just a few steps from the White House. In your view, is Donald Trump a danger to liberal democracy in the United States? Well, I think we each have to decide what kind of posture we're going to take to the very new and potentially dangerous phenomenon of Donald Trump. I, as a social scientist and someone who occupies a variety of different roles, am not going to declare definitely that he is, but I think we need to be vigilant against the possibility that he is given the positions that he's taken in the campaign, given some of the appointments he has made 
and you know, given his conduct up until the current moment with his tweeting and his style of intimidation of critics. So I fear that he may be. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. There's been a big debate here over why it is that a lot of these segments have been lost to the Democratic Party over the years. And it always seems to me that broadening the picture out a little bit there to the worldwide context is helpful because people are always tempted by these stories that are really just about the United States. But you see a similar development going on in other countries as well. So in your work, you've talked a lot about the idea of a sort of worldwide democratic recession. What do you mean by that? What does that mean? And, and what do you think some of the causes for it might be? Let me say in general that for the last 10 years, there has been a modest recession that has, in recent years, showed signs of deepening and accelerating. And when you say recession, you don't mean the economy, right? freedom and democracy in the world. It's a political recession, not an economic recession. The political recession of freedom and democracy was certainly accelerated by the economic recession, the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009. But well before that, even in 2006 and 2007, we could see that the expansion of democracy in the world was leveling off, that as a result of the Iraq intervention and the kind of, uh, in a way, overreach in terms of some uh, democracy promotion policies and rhetoric and generally just uh, the kind of shallowness of democratic institutions in a number of countries to which democracy had extended, freedom and democracy were beginning to be in retreat. And then the Great Recession and its origin, let's be honest now, in the United States and the grotesque manipulation of financial markets in the United States and lack of effective uh, regulation uh, and the kind of running amok of financial capitalism in the United States and Europe more broadly triggered this uh, near heart attack of the world financial system. And the effects have been very long in working out uh, and very slow to yield to really vigorous, sustainable, and inclusive economic growth. So the result has been that there has been really significant wage stagnation. That's not the only reason for it, but it's been a reason. Increasing discomfort and alienation of the working class and some swaths of the middle class in Europe and the United States. And what was for most of the last 10 or 11 years an insecurity of, a greater vulnerability of, a certain softening of freedom and democracy in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the post-communist states has become a surge of right-wing illiberal populism in Europe, uh, and now, I would argue, in the United States. The early signs of this were the victory of Viktor Orban uh, in Hungary, 
uh, and his Fidesz uh, party, and then Orban's kind of borrowing from the Putin playbook, mm -hmm. not as blatantly, not as repressively, but with that kind of logic of trying to use chauvinistic, xenophobic conceptions of national identity and hostility to outsiders and to globalization and to liberalism to consolidate uh, party hegemony in Hungary, which he's done. Mm -hmm. And then the spread of this mentality uh, in even more xenophobic uh, conception in some cases to other political parties and movements in Europe. Then the Brexit vote, which was very much led by the United Kingdom Independence Party, UKIP, and its longstanding resentment of foreigners and kind of articulation of many of those nationalist and anti-European integration, anti-globalization grievances. Shortly before that, uh, the victory of the Law and Justice Party in Poland with an extremely conservative and, again, anti-globalization uh, political agenda. Mm -hmm. And so you see now alternative for Germany and the, the Dutch right-wing extremist party and a number of others, Marine Le Pen, and the National Front in France all gathering momentum. And now, of course, we have the new phenomenon as well that's at least become much more apparent, much more impactful, much more multidimensional, much more sophisticated of a Russian effort to assist these various kinds of right-wing populist parties, almost all of which are very explicitly admiring of and sympathetic to Vladimir Putin, and the Russian right-wing populist political phenomenon and authoritarian state, and in the case of the United States, to try and sabotage the campaign of the Democratic Party candidate Hillary Clinton, and when it became apparent that it was that effort was working even better than Putin anticipated, to try to swing the election to Donald Trump, which I think that... Putin's intervention probably made the difference in doing. Hmm. Yeah. So, so it strikes me that there's two things going on here, and it might be worth teasing them apart. So, you know, one is that there have been these successive waves of democratization around the world, and then often these waves of democratization bring democracy to countries where it struggles to survive, and in some countries it takes. In other countries, you then end up seeing democracies fall again. And so sort of over time, you have a little bit of this give and take. And so we had this big wave of democratization in the 1990s and subsequently, and in some ways, we're now seeing that wave come back in and some democracies struggling. And that's part of this overall worldwide recession of democracy. And then it seems like there's a separate part of it, which which is in some ways much more shocking because it doesn't seem like part of his normal to and fro. It's really something new, which is that suddenly you have these threats to democracy, these challenges to democracy, even in countries that you used to consider safe in North America, in Western Europe, where we thought they were not part of a to and fro. Those countries, democracy was stable, it was consolidated. We didn't have to worry about it. So, you know, one thing that I'm trying to figure out is what caused that? And you mentioned the Great Recession. Is this a bunch of factors coming together in a really unfortunate way? It's the perfect storm. And if we survive this particular crisis, things will go back to being normal? Or is the Great Recession just 
an additional factor that has sort of like an enzyme made underlying causes worse. And really what we're seeing is this seminal shift and we're really entering a completely new world for a long time. According simply to the historical reflection you offered, that if democracy moves in waves, it's bound to ebb at some point. It's kind of a natural correction that's going to occur. And I think that's part of what was happening in the early 2000s, democracy had expanded to a lot of places in Africa, Asia, and so on, where the supporting conditions were not very favorable. And you would expect there'd be some pressure to roll back. As I said, I think that the Iraq war was a, was a turning point. We can, one can see a lot of indicators of democratic expansion and freedom in the world all beginning to exhibit an inflection point towards stagnation or decay beginning around 2006. Hmm. You got to ask what happened uh, in advance of 2006 that led to that. So, so what do you think that story about the Iraq war is? How does that help to I explain? Think people looked at the argument that we were there to promote democracy, looked at how horrifically bad it was going, there was, as you know, widespread European and in some cases American, in some cases global opposition to the American decision, largely unilateral, <clears throat> to intervene militarily in Iraq. And democracy promotion became associated with the use of force to impose democracy quite incorrectly, but it was a kind of gross generalization that people derived then as a result of Iraq and as a result of the Great Recession of 2008, Barack Obama was elected president of the United States. And though he saved, I think, the American and world economies with his assertive policies to address the Great Recession, he did pull back on democracy promotion not on the prosaic efforts to you know, spend money and support democracy through programmatic efforts, but to lean on authoritarian states to move in a more democratic direction. And I think all of that just created less of a supporting environment mm. for the growth and defense of democracy in the world. And that was interacting with more difficult economic times. That was interacting with the growth of authoritarian regimes and their self-confidence and their learning of new techniques of technological offense and defense in terms of using and misusing and closing popular access to the internet. So there was a, quite a lot going on. The adaptation of authoritarian regimes like Russia, China, and Iran has been an important part of this story. But the new element, Yasha, that is by far more dangerous than anything we had experienced is this spreading virus of support for right-wing populist leaders, parties, and movements. Yeah, it seems like illiberal democracy as a regime form has become self-conscious and self-confident. Even two or three years ago when I was starting to worry about the stability of liberal democracies, um, I thought, well, at least there's no coherent alternative. Singapore is successful, but it's a very small country. It's a city-state. It's very difficult to emulate. China is in some ways successful, but sort of 
theoretically, it's it's a mess, right? I mean, it's a capitalist society claiming to be communist. It's very difficult to export. You know, Iran may have pull on a certain number of uh, countries with predominantly Shia population, but outside, not just the Muslim world, but even the Shia world, nobody's going to emulate Iran. So, you know, there isn't anything to go to. And now it seems like people do have something to Correct. go to. Certainly, there is a model in Europe and in the advanced industrial countries more broadly that has been emerging and uh, becoming more refined and that is diffusible, if not exportable. I would be cautious about calling it illiberal democracy. I would simply call it illiberal governance, which may stop short of desecrating the minimum standards of democracy and may not stop short of doing so. Once you head in the direction, as Orban did, as Erdogan did in Turkey many years before that, as... Uh, Kaczynski and his Law and Justice Party are doing now in Poland, of promoting illiberal values and assaulting the institutional constraints against demagogic populist rule, it isn't clear where the momentum stops. Mm -hmm. And it isn't clear that it is going to stop on the democratic side of the divide between democracy and pseudo-democracy, or what some of our colleagues in the political science community have called competitive authoritarianism. And I think it hasn't stopped at democracy in Hungary. I think Orban has dragged it down below the threshold. I think Poland is headed in that direction. And there's, there's no guarantee that other Western or liberal democracies in the world won't tread down a path of intimidation of opposition, constraints on independent expression, constraints on individual leaders, the construction of a kind of cult of personality and hegemony around a ruler and a ruling party that become so assertive and so illiberal that you can no longer call the system a democracy anymore. To me, that goes back about you know, the way in which we should or should not be worried about somebody like Donald Trump in the United States. And and I guess the way that I would put this point is to say that perhaps we now have an alternative regime form to liberal democracy that is self-conscious, that makes sense as an ideology, that's quite attractive. I would call it a liberal democracy, but we can call it whatever we want. But the danger with it is precisely that it's not stable, that it's an ideology that actually is internally coherent and it's quite attractive that if you go along with that, if you vote in somebody like Putin in Russia or Erdogan in Turkey or Orban in Hungary or perhaps Donald Trump in the United States, there can be no guarantee that, that the ideology you've been sold is how you're going to be governed. Because part of the ideology is to undermine independent institutions, to think that any political opponent is not legitimate or loyal. He really is outside of the real people. And so you slowly erode the system until you wind up with dictatorship. So perhaps one way of thinking about this is that there's, there's this weird situation where we have this new model of governance that is pretty ideologically coherent, but it's not empirically stable. It's a way station on the way to dictatorship. That's a very interesting proposition. I would 
modified in the following respects and modify it tentatively and speculatively because we don't know where all this is heading. And that's part of a problem, right? That when you look at countries like Poland or Hungary, you can see these populist authoritarians in government and you can see them taking the first step towards straightforward Correct. dictatorship. But you don't know whether the step one and step two imply that they're also going to take step three and four and five and ten or whether they're going to stop. So we don't know any of this. One presumes that because Hungary and Poland are in the European Union, they're not going to descend to the level of Putin and Russia in terms of the establishment of fully authoritarian, nearly dictatorial system. One assumes that, but we assume that they couldn't cross the line to the extent of illiberal and I would argue democratic or nearly undemocratic government that they have already done as members of the European Union without much effective sanction from the European right. Union. So who knows where this will stop? Where I would depart from you or amend your hypothesis is in a couple of respects. First of all, if you listened carefully to the rhetoric of each of these leaders and others, I think you could discern in their campaigns a certain hints at decidedly illiberal and even undemocratic mentalities and intentions. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's entirely a shell game or a oh, shock. I see. Mm -hmm. uh, although initially people were shocked by the extent of authoritarian overreach in Poland and I think initially in Hungary. But look, after Orban did what he did to intimidate and punish opposition, he ran again and won again. Now, not an entirely level an electoral playing field, but the point is increasingly people knew what they were dealing with and many people supported it. Yeah. Uh, so we need to amend it that way. The second crucial point I want to make, I think it's vital is that in all of these systems, I believe we will come in retrospect as this species of regime type rises and then falls, and I think it will fall, mm -hmm. and becomes a compelling candidate for academic post-mortem, we will see that there was a striking common element in all these systems, that once they knocked out the mechanisms of transparency, and the checks and balances, particularly in the legal system, because getting control of the judicial system has been one of the early objectives of all of these right-wing populist regimes. And that's something also mm -hmm. that we should watch for uh, in the current situation in the United States. Once they had done that and intimidated the media and forced many independent media out of business and made investigative reporting much more difficult, in Hungary, I think we will find this in Poland, certainly in Turkey, and even much more fantastically and egregiously in Russia, these regimes descended into orgies of corruption and insider trading, crony capitalism, and abuse of power for the individual and group benefit of clients and favored allies of the ruler and his party. And so corruption 
is the soft underbelly of this type of regime and I think will contribute to its undoing. That is both a sobering and in some weird ways a, a hopeful note. Um, one thing that just struck me in what you were saying is that, you know, this didn't come out of the blue, that with Kaczynski in Poland or Orban in Hungary, on the one side they claimed to stand for the people and to speak for the people and to be more democratic than the ruling elite. But on the other side, some of the stuff that was anti-democratic was actually out in the open in the election campaign. And, and it makes me think, obviously, of of Donald Trump and the way in which he both said, I am your voice at the RNC convention speech, but in which he did threaten to jail his opponent, say that he might not accept the outcome of the election and intimidate the media all the way through. So you can see both of those things sort of present in that. So, so bringing it back home, I suppose, uh, you know, what can we do about this? Well, first of all, I think we already have a lesson from these other cases and from the references you've made to his rhetoric during the election campaign, and that is to take their words seriously and not dismiss them or excuse them or minimize them. You studied European political history more closely than I have, but I think we can agree that autocrats frequently signal their intentions uh, not so abstrusely in the kind of rhetoric they use and in some very explicit vows they make as they're campaigning. Now, they may surge in much more extreme ways after they have power, but you know we need to take rhetoric very seriously. Secondly, I think we need to monitor very seriously and investigate very vigorously. Mm -hmm. It is deeply unfortunate uh, that the Senate Majority Leader is resisting the appointment of an independent and freestanding uh, Senate committee, bipartisan, to fully investigate the Russian hacking and the possibility, which uh, some media reports have suggested, that there was some kind of collusion during the campaign between the Trump campaign or organization and the Russian government. But this investigation needs to happen. It's very important to the future of democracy in the United States that it happen. And citizens across the political spectrum in the United States, because that includes many conservatives who have already done so, should demand this kind of investigation. The mass media, I think, need to uh, put a lot of resources into investigative reporting. Maybe it needs to happen on a cooperative basis. And we need to support them financially and uh, in terms of uh, patronizing their publications with our you know, subscriptions in order for them to do so. One last thing I'll say, because there are many things one could say. I have some sense of the kinds of people who may be listening to this podcast. <laughs> so I really want to underscore this. It, it is one of the most important things I have to say. I am worried about what a Donald Trump presidency may represent for our democracy and our freedom. But if we are going to defend democracy and freedom effectively in the United States, should a Trump presidency represent a threat to that, we will need the active support and partnership of people on the Republican and conservative sides of the political divides. And if we don't make that distinction, 
between programmatic and ideological battles on the one hand and the defense of our institutions on the other, I think we will be making a huge strategic error. Larry, I have, you know, about a gazillion questions, uh, some of which I'd written down and some of which in my head, which I still would like to to ask you. But I think we, we better wrap up this conversation. Thank you so much for being my, my guest. And the way that I have to deal with asking those questions is simply to have you uh, back on and on as okay. we move forward. Thank you, um, Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Uh, let me ask you a favor. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate it on iTunes. Please share it with your friends and on social media. And finally, please send suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.